Good morning, and welcome to episode 95 of Effectively Wild, the Baseball Prospectus Daily Podcast in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, for the third episode in a row and the final episode. Uh, I am Ben Lindbergh, and in Long Beach, California, new BBWAA member, Sam Miller. Congratulations on, on being admitted to the official Baseball Writers Club. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. How do you like it? How do you like being in it? It's been good for me. Did it get you anywhere to in this uh, this week, the winter meetings? Did it get you any access? Uh, it got me into the media workroom, and I might have been able to get in there anyway, but uh, we had a bunch of people here from BP who were requesting passes, so not necessarily. So yes, it helped me this week and helped me throughout the season. It is It is nice to be able to wander into a, a ballpark whenever you feel like it yeah that's the primary benefit yes definitely yes at any inning with no notice mm-hmm. as it is now it usually requires uh a day of notice or two days on the weekend and you can't go into the park until about three and a half hours before the game which is actually not really quite early enough mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times and um uh, you have to ask your boss to put in some requests. So, yeah. and if you go to a visiting park, there is no telling what will happen. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. I went to the Yankees park, and I was allowed to talk to the Angels only, which I had never mm-hmm. run into that. Mm-hmm. Yes, certain, right. certain teams are strict, but no longer a problem for you. All doors are open. So Yeah. All right. All right. So that's let's, uh, let's answer some emails. Shall I yes, do the reading today? Oh, okay, sure. All right, so we have some emails. Uh, the first email question is actually two emails from two separate individuals. Uh, one is named Mike, and he asks, uh, at what point should a switch hitter stop being a switch hitter? When's there a large discrepancy between their uh, when there's a large discrepancy between their performance? At what point is it better to scrap the platoon advantage and hit from the favorable side? Meanwhile, a gentleman named Joel asks the exact same question. <laughs> Um, so the most interesting part of this for me is why do you think we got two questions? <laughs> Who do you think the player is? Were, now, uh, were, was the yeah. wording, the wording was verbatim the same or just no, different, different words. This one is what does the gap in OPS or OPS plus need to be between there? Mm-hmm. AB as a LH and RH mm-hmm. hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain those abbreviations for you <laughs> and for how long, etc. Mm-hmm. So, so do you, I think that it's clear who this is talking about. Do you ask? Uh, oh, I, I, I wasn't even thinking about a particular person. Uh, this brought to mind an article at BP from a couple of years ago because he asked if anyone had ever done research on it, and there was someone who did research on it. Um, Tommy Bennett came up with the term uh, shino or shino or whatever how you you pronounce it switch hitter in name only exactly yes uh like so a, a he came up with mind. yes so he came up with this term and then eric seidman uh who was at bp at the time looked into it to find out who qualified as one of these people and he was looking for i think over a 25 year span uh prior to that point and he found very few people who satisfied this condition and the way Eric looked at it, and I think the way that makes sense, is not just to compare 
the switch hitter's performance from one side to his performance from the other side, but to compare the performance from his weaker side to the league average, basically. Or Right, so I mean, uh, he used Lance Berkman as an example of a guy who had a very big split and was much better from one side than the other, but was so good from his strong side that even when you took away all that production when he was from his weaker side, he was still better than, than the typical batter from that side. So it's still... That seems that seems questionable to me. Well, he he acknowledged that. I mean, you also have to account for how well they would do uh, if they were yeah. only facing, uh, if if they didn't have the platoon advantage and they were always from that one side. Um, and so he kind of acknowledged that maybe it it depends on how comfortable they are against a, a same-handed pitcher. Um, especially after years of never facing one. Um, well, there are people who have switched, who have gone, who have abandoned yeah, there switch were, and it's interesting to see how quickly that stabilizes. Yeah, he mentioned J.T. Snow, JT Snow yeah. uh, as one guy who probably should have switched and then did switch. Uh, he also mentioned John Valentin as another guy who, who I think late in his career did switch or almost totally switched, and the numbers suggested that he should have done that. Um, but he, he only identified something like 13 people over 25 years who he thought it might have made sense for them to bat exclusively from one side. So, yeah, you can you can quibble with, with the methodology, but I think the basic idea is that you don't get to be a switch hitter in almost all cases unless you can do that. It's not something that teams are inclined to let people do uh, if they haven't demonstrated the ability to do that. But there are probably a, a few guys here and there. Who, What player did you think it was referring to? Uh, Victorino. Uh-huh. Okay. So um, I, uh, I've uh, often thought in you know a moment of, of passion that some particular player should... Um, you know, should give it up. But as I think Tommy probably noted, it is, uh, I mean, it, it takes a long time before platoon splits mean anything mm-hmm. anyway. And, um, you know, but that are sort of statistically significant. And, um, and it would, I mean, I think that before you, before you could say that you really have to determine, uh, how much worse than, um, than the league average against, you know, same side hitters, the guy, the guys who have switched have done. And they're probably, there, there maybe just aren't enough in the major leagues. I think, you know, maybe if you had access to, well, I mean, if you, if you looked at minor league numbers, that introduces a, a whole lot more noise, but you might, I'm sure you would see a lot more players who ditched a switch hit in, mm-hmm. um, you know, in low A mm-hmm. than in the majors. JT Snow, incidentally, um, his OPS as a lefty against lefties in his career uh, was about, uh, 100 points higher mm-hmm. than lefty as a righty, and now that's—I don't know if that's controlled for where he was in his career. He was—I think he was older. It was 98, so he was probably—I don't know—30 or so when that happened. And it looks as though he kind of—he—he uh, he did actually increase his OPS year by year for each of the first four years, mm-hmm. and then he was very old mm-hmm. and. Limited. So that's only one case, and it might not be a telling case, but it's an interesting. I do you know how big Victorino's split is. Uh, lately, it's been massive. It's been a, it's the thing is it's a three year trend, and 
the average fan slash analyst sees that and thinks, well, three years, goodness gracious, that's a, a lot of years. But it's really not is the problem. It is, uh, I don't know, I, I think I actually plan to talk about. The, yeah, I was going to say that would be kind of a good segue for another question that we plan to answer. So let's do that. So the next uh, question is uh, from uh, Scott Cummings, who referred to this as trivia. Uh, I'm not sure why. Um, but... <laughs> Oh, I, sh- I shouldn't have said his full name. Yeah, I, I've heard other podcasts divulge full names. I don't know. Well, I feel bad for you because I you might not have wanted... I mean, for instance, I'm going to give away a little bit of personal information. Should I not do that? Uh, it's barely yeah. personal. I don't know. Uh, right. Well, let's just say that... Well, no. Let's, I think uh, it was it was a Twitter interaction, so it's, it's out there. Oh, mine wasn't. Mine was not a Twitter. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, it's his birthday coming up, and he asks if uh, his birthday gift we could answer his question about the book um, by Tango and MGL and Dolphin that Ben Lindbergh suggested to him. He wants to know what are some key takeaways that you and other prospectus writers have learned from it, and why do so many... I can't read the rest because something is blocking it. A window is blocking it. Mm -hmm. Something. All right, so... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what do you, uh, the book is an interesting, I mean, obviously the, I think the book is one of those things like Seinfeld where even if you've never seen an episode, you've seen (laughs) every line from every episode, you might well have seen it. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you have a particular favorite? It sounds like you do in it. Well, Well. yeah, I don't know if that was my favorite, but that was certainly one of the, the takeaways was just how long it takes for platoon splits to, to stabilize or to mean anything. Um, and so since the book came out, there have been millions of blog posts written about projected platoon splits using the methodology from the book. Um, and I mean, the conclusion is always that it, it seems to take longer than you think it should, uh, for those things to become significant and and for you to be able to trust them. Um, and I don't know, I wish I had my copy with me. I am in Nashville and do not, or I would have flipped through it. But it has come in handy many, many times as I've written things or just thought about things. I guess the the stuff on lineup order has been uh, sort of the, the last word on that, I guess, um, mm-hmm. at this point. But kind of hopeless, too, like kind of not really useful at this right, point. Right, because they, they made these definitive conclusions about where you should bat each player, but then the conclusion was also that it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, yeah. And it's sort of a non-starter with, uh, you know, like probably 28 to 30 uh, current managers. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's just a total non-starter. Yeah, because it just doesn't oh, fit the those archetypes of, of who's supposed to bat where very well. Do you think we'll ever get there? Do you think there how, – how many years are we until we start seeing um, optimized lineups? Uh, I don't know that they'll ever match the book's lineups perfectly. Uh-huh. Well, I do. You do? You think so? Sure. Why would anybody – I mean, once it became, once it, if it sort of starts to become normal enough, why would anybody, you know, not? No, I, I feel like it's not a big enough advantage to jolt people out of the the set ways, maybe. Uh huh. But I don't know. You'd think someone would want to do that. Uh, other stuff. I don't know. I'm trying to think years. of. I'd say 18 years. I guess. I guess also the, not just the platoon splits, but the matchup stats stuff in the book is interesting in that they really pretty rigorously tried to find out whether there was anything to be concluded from any reasonably sized sample of batter versus pitcher 
uh, matchups and concluded that there really wasn't. And I think they've said since that maybe with PitchFX they could do a better job than they did at the time because they they sort of divided pitchers into families uh, of pitchers based on certain stats and what sort of pitcher they were, but it wasn't like a, a pitch by pitch level thing. Um, but but they pretty much concluded that even if a, a batter has owned a pitcher over a over a pretty large sample, the, those batters are no less likely to do well than anyone else. So that was something that that sticks in my mind. Also, I don't know. is there anything else that reminds you of of the book? I guess no, I, one more thing. I, I guess the 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 uh, stuff about ground ball, fly ball splits, and how if a a ground ball hitter faces a ground ball pitcher, then then the advantage is with the pitcher, I think, and it's like a, a multiplier sort of thing. It's like, or they they basically concluded that that the, the ground ball fly ball split, while not as significant as the lefty righty split, is still significant. So I don't know. Off the top of my head, that stuff sticks out. Yeah, it's a I've, I, it's a spectacular book. It I use it much more as a reference. Mm-hmm. I've never actually read it from cover to cover. Have you? And do you recommend it? Is it useful? Uh, it- I did. Uh, I I did read it from cover to cover, but not, but kind of skimming over some of the the hardcore methodology stuff that I didn't necessarily need to know or wouldn't remember anyway. Um, and they have those helpful little boxes at the end of each section that tells you basically what you're supposed to learn from that section. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I flip back to it often. Okay. Well, Scott, I'm sorry for, uh, telling everybody your name. And if you want to let us know why you called this trivia, if you're suggesting that this show is trivial, I would understand um, but I probably would have been less likely to answer your question in that case. Um, all right, let's um, let's talk about Dan Heron because it's timely. Uh, this is from a gentleman named Corey who says, as a Philly fan, I've been paying close attention to what other teams in the division are doing. Uh, this morning, Dan Heron signed with the Nationals, and many of my Philly friends started complaining that Amaro hasn't made any moves yet, while division rivals have added some big names. This got me thinking. Dan Heron is basically replacing Edwin Jackson in their rotation, Years ago, this would be a pretty substantial upgrade. But at this point, is it a lateral move? Mm. Heron has injury problems and has been the same pitcher lately. I'm no Edwin Jackson fan, but I think he would be cheaper and probably more reliable than Heron next year. Am I wrong in that thinking? Um, <clears throat> what's your thought? Uh, I don't know about the cheaper part. At least not not well, significantly. I, I, I mean, I would think that he would maybe command a multi-year deal, which is, of course, what everyone thought last winter, and he ended up signing for one year, so you never know, I suppose. But it seems like this year he will probably get his multi-year deal, and I wouldn't expect it to be for much less annually than than Heron got for one year. Um, So I don't think it would be a discount. I guess the the question of whether he would be better or not is is interesting. Uh, Before this year, I certainly would not have said so. But given all the injury stuff and the velocity stuff that you wrote about in the transaction analysis of the Heron move, uh, I'm not sure who I would trust now. I was talking to Dan Evans today who was telling me just how ordinary Heron looked um, in the second half of last season and just kind of looked like he had lost it. And uh, you would think that the Nationals wouldn't 
commit that much money if they weren't pretty confident that he could be better than that again. But uh, I don't know that it would be safe to expect him to be better than Jackson. Yeah, you know, this is, I think that the Dan Heron move has kind of uh, been seen as a, a move that's either going to pay off great or pay off not at all. That he's either healthy and you're going to get a good pitcher, uh, a pitcher of Heron's kind of past, or he's going to be injured and he's going to, you know, get, um, you know, he's going to get bounced out of spring training and have, um, you know, back surgery or hip surgery. Um, and I actually, um, I think I, I, I don't know. I might, when I wrote the transaction analysis, that actually might've been the kind of paradigm that I was looking at it through. But I, now I sort of think it's not that way. I kind of feel like Heron is, um, is maybe in a way, um, not that not that unsafe that he's probably not going to be um, a great pitcher anymore, um, and that they're paying a little bit of a premium for the potential that that is there. But I would say it's unlikely. But he was hurt last year. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious he was hurt last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Saxon of the of ESPN LA said that he's been dealing with the hip since 2005. Um, and you know, I mean, he was very clear. I, I think it was, it's it's pretty obvious that he's either hurt. Or he is in that phase of his career where he's he's probably not going to get the velocity back, but he wasn't a terrible pitcher. And if you kind of I don't know I mean if you adjust a little bit of home run luck for him, you know he's essentially a, a you know kind of a league average pitcher in that state. And my guess is that if he's you know willing to um, you know pitch through a little bit of pain, and if the doctors say that it's not going to get worse, and if he passes his physical that he is probably an average pitcher with a little bit of upside. Now, an average pitcher doesn't cost $13 million for the most part, uh, but it's only one year. It's, um, you know, it's only $13 million. I, I find that I, f- I find myself um, with much less appetite to quibble over a few million dollars here and there when, when, I, when you look at how many of these moves either turn out great or turn out terrible, and very few end up in that kind of sliver of a margin between what we call a good trade and what we call a bad trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, yeah, I don't know. I would. I think I'd rather have. I think I'd rather have Edwin Jackson. But I don't hate the move for Heron. the The big thing with Heron is is just obviously that not only do the Angels know him better, but the Angels need him better. Need him more. Mm-hmm. They an opening in their rotation. They have the money to fill it. They have the outfield defense to support a flyball pitcher. They have the out the baseball park to support a flyball pitcher. Um, they have every reason in the world to sign Dan Heron. And the fact that they were less willing to than the Nationals is a humongous piece of information. On the other hand, as I noted in the transaction analysis, they did try to re-sign him. So uh, they tried to re-sign him for less. They thought he was worth less, but they didn't think that he was going to uh, implode um, getting off the plane in February. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also significant information. And I don't know, it's not not a bad move. The Nationals don't, uh, probably are less, less, you know, desperate for that arm than almost any team and so in a weird way they can handle the upside uh, the downside more than anyone and i'm not sure that heron is even in their plans for the season unless you know things go right with him or really wrong with someone else yeah i I think maybe heron might be less scary paradoxically if he had missed more time with the injury if we hadn't seen him pitching with it quite so much Mm -hmm. uh because it clearly affected him if he had just been on the DL that whole time and we could have said, well, he was hurt and now he'll be healthy again and he'll be the old Heron again. 
Whereas you wonder if now he's just always going to be pitching with that and always going to be pitching like he did. Uh, but if he's a league average pitcher, I don't really expect more from Edwin Jackson than that. Um, Edwin Jackson had a 98 ERA plus last season and a 98 ERA plus over the last 10 seasons. Mm-hmm. So that's kind wow, of... Wow, Edwin Jackson's been pitching for 10 seasons? <laughs> yes, he started when he was 19. Holy uh, moly. But yes, uh, so he's basically been a, a league average guy. Better than that in some seasons, but not consistently. Um, and there's no reason to expect him to get better at this point. So that's well, kind of who really, he is. Yeah, we don't really have a reliable pitch velocity for more than a few years. But I mean, what I would love to see is a list of pitchers who lost, you know, three miles or more of velocity after they were, say, 25 and regained it without getting cut open. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that list is greater or longer than one. <laughs> it, yeah, greater or it's it's got to be short. Very short. Yeah. Um, all right. Do you have a particular question that you would like to choose, or should I just choose another one? Uh, just choose another one. All right. Well, uh, I guess since it's timely and it's quick, uh, Aaron asks, should the Yankees pursue you know, Escobar with A-Rod expected to miss many games? Any other realistic trades for agents? And obviously, uh, you know, Escobar was traded today to the Rays. Uh, there was a headline in Florida that said Escobar was ready to move on from the Marlins, which is the funniest straight headline <laughs> that I have seen this mm-hmm. offseason. Um, and, uh, you know, it seems like not much to give up for Escobar, who is, I think, signed, including options for three more years and $15 million total. Escobar, if you believe his defense, is actually fairly valuable. If you don't believe his defense, he's not valuable. It's an interesting move. I would commend the Rays for it. But you've been in the winter meetings. You, um, since you live in New York, I would think that you might have a little bit extra interest in the Yankees. I just wonder if you can share any sense that you're getting from the people around you or from the Yankees pressers or just from the general um, uh, excitement or lack of excitement around their winter meetings if you have any insight. Uh, I don't think anyone knows who's going to be playing third base for the Yankees, including the Yankees. Um, it seemed like they were making a bit of a, a push for Marco Scudero, but he has now been re-signed by the Giants, so he's off the, the table too. And from everything I've heard, Stephen Drew wouldn't want to be uh, a third baseman or a part-time guy. And that kind of leaves Jeff Kepinger, maybe, as far as free agents go, who's someone that it's... they've... Express. Sorry, forgive me. Forgive me for knowing, not knowing this, but uh, Euclid is still out there, isn't he? Yes. Uh, yeah, and he has been somewhat connected. I mean, basically everyone who has ever played third base and is available has been connected at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like maybe some sort of trade that no one sees coming could happen here. But based on everything I've heard here, everyone I've talked to, no one really has any sense of what's going to happen and the Yankees have a bunch of holes to fill and as we discussed they don't seem to be willing to spend all that much to fill them so I don't know I don't know what they're going to do just curious if you uh, if they say in the next two years when they're doing their austerity push if they miss the playoffs both years Mm. Are there any long-term or short-term impacts on the Yankees as a business besides, you know, the, the loss of direct postseason revenue? Do you think that there's – do they have any 
you know, I mean, are they at a point where they don't even have to really worry about fan credibility at this point? Right, because just, they've just built up off. so much of it over the last however many decades of winning. Um, yeah, there's, really another, there's not really another show in town at this point. Yeah, uh, right. It probably helps that the, the Mets are going through a dry spell right now, too. Um, I don't know. I, it certainly wouldn't be any kind of blow that they couldn't recover from. The Yankees have been bad before and then got good again and were just as popular and, and profitable as they ever have been. So uh, I'm sure it would affect their bottom line to some extent, but from everything you read, it seems like they must be making tons of money as it is. Yeah. Uh, so I doubt it would be any sort of major crippling blow. I'm sort of impressed that the Marlins took all the heat a couple of weeks ago and then <laughs> waited like two weeks and they're like, oh, let's do it again. Yeah. Like, and- no, no shame. No, <laughs> no, not abashed at all. Just, like, I, I almost kind of respect that at that point. And you wonder if Nolasco is next because he is, I think, indicated that he would like to be traded without formally requesting it. You almost don't have to request it because you just assume it will happen uh, at this point. And if Nolasco goes, then... They will just have no payroll, no payroll at all, and it's hard to. Know, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Do you know the trade request rules? I can't remember. Do you know if Nolasco has the the rights to? I think you have to be, you have to have been traded to the team, right? You can only request a trade if you had already been traded to that team, right? I do not know that rule. It's the the Javier Vasquez mm-hmm. rule, so. I'll, we'll look it up and maybe I'll do an unfiltered about yeah. it. I, I mean, you figure they're just going to keep signing a few players here and there to sort of appease the players union. Like they signed Juan Pierre and, and they were rumored to be interested in Mark DeRosa, uh, who <laughs> Jonah Carey mentioned earlier. He told me about that rumor and said he didn't even know that Mark DeRosa was still playing baseball. Uh, one wrist. Right. So I feel like they're just going to spend a little bit of money here and there just to, just to appease the, the players' union and not get a, a slap on the wrist or worse for not spending any money, but you wonder how low they can go at this point. You do. All right, well, we're going to end it. Uh, that's the end of this show. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, our Thursday episode, and we hope you have a wonderful day.